Um, What's up, you guys? My name is Preston. I am, um, uh, I work for uh, recovery, uh, mental health and addiction recovery hospital. Um, Most of what I do is with under 18, the under 18 crew. Um, And I get to go out and talk to schools and counselors and social workers and juvenile courts and um, uh, yeah, just try and help people find the help that they need. So um, I'm a person in long-term recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. I haven't used since September the 10th of 2001. So this September, it'll be 18 years. And when I was in your seat, I thought people like me were so old. And I am. I'm a dorky old white dude that's bald with glasses. But I have cool shoes and hot pink pants. And I try to like fit in wherever I go. Because it's still this this issue with me of trying to get in where I fit in. And so um, I wonder if that will ever go away. But um, but what I'm going to, my plan is to tell you a little bit about um, how I got sober and um, some of the life lessons that I learned as a direct result of my recovery and how I applied that to not only my school career, but my professional career too. There's nothing I love more than to be sitting in a room talking about Um, thoughts, feelings, attitudes, behaviors, recovery, personal development, how to be better and do better. And so um, I'm grateful, grateful to be here. Um, Just so I get a feel for uh, who I'm speaking with, my man with the, uh, with the Jordan fives, what the, how long you been here? A couple days. Are you on probation in juvenile court? Yeah. I I just uh, went and spoke to to, uh, the uh, probation officers over there. So Welcome, man. Glad you're here. You got a good opportunity. What about you? What? Uh, how'd you end up here? Uh, I was in the area. Oh, right on. And where you live in the area in Columbus or Greater Outside Columbus? Cool. All right. And we met before already. What up? Good to see you're still here. Good. Um. So. Uh, so I'm from Texas. Um, I grew up with a, a family that um, was were. For the most part, I thought it was quite social drinking, but it was. I've learned that it was actually heavy drinkers. Um, my dad owned a newspaper. My mom was a hairstylist, and um, you know, for the most part, I mean, um, we had a quote-unquote normal family. Uh, my parents stayed together until my dad passed away from uh, liver cancer, which uh, my family considers it cancer. I consider it direct result of alcoholism because he was a heavy drinker, but um, that's neither here nor there. But I started um, really emulating what I saw. Like every time my parents um, or anybody else uh, were doing anything social, there was also, there was always alcohol involved. So whether it was camping at the, at the lake or it was a, a family of function or it was a long road trip, there was always, always, always alcohol involved, even down to like you know, watching TV at home, you know, my dad would always have a couple of beers at night. And for me, that was 100% normal. And here's one of the things that um, I struggled with early on when I was your age was in the beginning, I was just emulating what I saw. In other words, I noticed that that it was things were always funner and more entertaining when there was alcohol involved. And so I associated really quickly that if I wasn't having a good time or I wanted to have a good time, that if I put a substance in my body, that it would make it better. Um, I can't remember the last time I, or the first time I drank. I specifically remember the first time I smoked weed. I was probably, 
I must have been in the eighth grade, maybe, but um, but uh, that that was kind of the, the the start of my journey. And so um, I was active in sports. I was pretty good at um, keeping my quote unquote stuff together. In other words, um, since my parents knew a, a whole lot of people in town, I um, I would get caught a lot. So what that means was I would be out there drinking, smoking weed, driving crazy, stealing stuff, and someone who knew my parents would see me and tell on me. And so what that, what, what that taught me early on was how to be resourceful and how to get away with stuff and how to present one image to you, um, but be act in a different way on the, on the back end. Because, um, you know, I, if I could get away with it, and be able to play both sides of the fence. In other words, I showed up to school every day. When I learned real quick that my uh, my neighbor worked in the attendance office, which I didn't know this neighbor, but my parents did, was when I'd skip class in the middle of the day and they'd always find out. And I'd be like, how in the hell did they find out? Like, I didn't go anywhere. Like, how do they know? Well, my neighbor was in the attendance office, so they'd, they'd let, call my parents and say, your boy skipped, you know, fifth fifth period. And so I'd get, I'd get in trouble. But, um, but... On, on started this, it was like this cat and mouse game. Because I first uh, started getting in trouble with my parents, it was a cat and mouse game to get around my parents. So um, as long as I showed up to school, made decent grades, they would stay off my back. I played sports. I, um, uh, Looking back, I wanted to quit sports a few times, and my dad wouldn't let me. And I'm really grateful because if I wasn't in sports, I would have gotten in much, much more trouble. But it started out like getting um, getting in trouble drinking. They would catch me drinking, or I would get a uh, down there. They called it a minor in possession, so the police would raid a party, and I'd get in trouble. Um, they'd find my my weed stash, and I'd get in trouble. And um, in the early early on, in that like you know 15, 16, 17, 18 year old period, it was me against my parents. They were. Um, they were the authoritarians. They were the oppressors. They wanted to, to make sure that I didn't have any fun um, when in the reality, as far as I saw it, I was just doing what they did. And so I felt it very, very hypocritical that they would, in a sense, say, you know, do what I say, not as I do. Um, now that I have a child, I also see how difficult that is. And sometimes <laughs> so, so um, uh, anyways, realizing they weren't as bad of parents as I originally thought they were. Um, but here's what happened for me was, um, when I first started drinking and using, I didn't know what you meant by how do you feel? I either felt great or I felt all right. There wasn't even really a feel bad or to be honest, I didn't actually feel worthy enough to be, um, to feel angry. Like I felt because I've done some work now is looking at my self-worth and realizing that one of my defense mechanisms was to keep calm at all times. So in any given situation, I would try to remain calm. I would, um, I would always wonder how people could get so mad that they would get into fights yet. Um, that was always something that I, you know, battled with is like masculinity, who I am as a, as a man or as a boy or, you know, whatever, like, where do I fit in the chain with all these, you know, kind of alpha male dudes. But that was, I've learned now that that was a defense mechanism that if I felt, if I kept my cool, that, that, um, that I could control the situation. And then usually after the situation, whether it's a run in with another dude at a party where they're, 
you know, trying to fight, trying to fight me or situations with girls or um, whatever. It would usually be after the fact and everything calmed down when I'd start beating myself up, calling myself a loser and weak and, you know, uh, not smart, you know, all these things that I've carried on into my adulthood. But um, I got my first DWI. Uh, I think they call it an OVI here, but a DWI my senior year in high school. And here's what's significant about that. Um, my parents always said if I ever went to jail, they wouldn't come get me. I got arrested, went to jail, they came and got me. So for me, something didn't match. Like they said one thing, but they did another. So this confusion of, um, this confusion that I felt like I've, I've kind of, uh, this idea of playing both sides of the fence or saying one thing and do another thing, um, you know, they said they weren't going to come get me. They came and got me. They came and got me in the middle of the night. Um, I went home, took a shower, and I went to school the very next day. So um, I thought in my mind, since I was still showing up to school at that moment, um, that I wasn't missing, that I, uh, yeah, that I didn't skip or miss. Like, I felt like it was not an issue. This goes back to this idea of, one of the things that my parents taught me um, early on was work ethic. Both of them were business owners, and there was no calling out sick to work. Um, and so I thought that if you show up to work every day, i.e. if I went to school every day, that nobody could tell me anything. Because in my mind, showing up to school and making good grades, like, as far as I was concerned, I was doing what I was supposed to do. And so I found that uh, I got really resentful that I got punished when I did something or got caught doing something because I'm like, what are you worried about? I'm going to school every day and I'm making good grades. I should be able to do whatever I want. And so that kind of played into a bit of a part of me going to school. But here's what's significant. I go to sc- I go back to school. I've been up all night. I was, uh, um, I was, uh, yeah, in jail the night before. A buddy of mine said, I told him I went to jail last night. And he goes, oh, man, congratulations. And he slapped me up and he put something in my hand. And what's significant about that is I didn't even think twice. I didn't look at my I didn't look what was in my hand. It didn't even cross my mind that I was in jail last night and I probably should pump the brakes. I went straight into the bathroom, opened the packet. Again, I didn't I didn't care what it was. I did that substance. And after the fact, I go, huh, this is kind of messed up. Like, this is, you ever had, like, a a tug in the back of your mind where you're saying one thing, but there's something in the back of your mind going, huh, something's weird here. Maybe this isn't normal. Because I know that a lot of my friends, going back to this playing both sides of the fence, I had a lot of friends that were kind of on the up and up, and they were, you know, they went to school, and they were cool, and they were active in school, and all this kind of stuff. And I had the other side where the people that I also like to hang out with that we would hang out in the hood and go steal stuff and break stuff and do whatever so I was just like constantly playing both sides of the fence and so I did that substance in the bathroom in my high school never crossing my mind that something was off uh never crossing my mind that man everybody else in my school is not getting arrested um and that was kind of the first little twinge of like man something something's not right here Um, but I didn't, I mean, I didn't change anything. I just went on about my business and, uh, um, I ended up getting out of trouble uh, with that particular situation. And, um, I graduated high school and I thought all my problems were going to go away because now I could do whatever I want. 
Um, but here's what happened to me is when I got out of that structure, in other words, the structure for me was my parents telling me what to do. So I had to go to school. I had to play sports. I had to, I had a curfew. I lived in their house. It was their rules. So for me, as much as I rebelled and said, F you, and I should be able to do whatever I want. I had this bit of structure around me. And so, um, when I graduated, uh, high school, um, so although I graduated high school, I cheated my way through high school. So that's kind of another thing when we think of like my, my self-worth, what do I think about myself? Like, um, at the moment, if you would have asked me, I was working smarter, not harder. So what that meant was, why would I do my homework if I could just cheat from you, like cheat off of your work? Or, um, if I miss school, uh, I wouldn't be able to cheat, so I better show up to school. So it's like this, like backwards and forwards of contradictory behavior. But um, I was going to college was not in my cards. I didn't think I was that smart. Um, you know, when you cheat your way through high school, it's kind of funny because you don't learn as much. And so when it, you know, when you go to college and you try to like do what the normal people are doing, you find it's quite difficult. But um, so I attempted going to college, but it was definitely not in my cards. Um, so when I got out of high school, I started working. I did a, um, I got my real estate license. And so on the outside, that looks really um, probably responsible. Like if you go, oh, y'all get out of Heartland High School and you go out at 18 years old and get your real estate license, like that would be pretty legit. But the thing was is I was just following direction. My parents knew someone they said hey do you want to get your real estate license I said yes I went and did it everybody's like wow that's so amazing I didn't have any drive I had no desire to do real estate I just did what was in front of me um going back to this idea of work ethic I thought that if I if I worked and paid my bills that nobody could tell me nothing because if you're paying my bills you have control over me if I'm paying my bills then I can do whatever I want but here's what the crazy thing that happened was that's when my um that's when my using ramped up, that's when my drinking ramped up, and that's when I really started getting in trouble, because um, obviously when you're under 18, you're treated like a, you know, you're a juvenile, you, you know, you have the potential of things not going on your record, but when I hit 18 years old, and I really started getting in trouble, like, things really got, um, really got serious, I was no longer held for a little bit and let go or let my parents come pick me up like they actually put me in jail overnight which I had not experienced as a juvenile but um so that was seniors high school uh so that was my got a DWI two years later I got a um a drug possession a year later I got another DWI and four months later I got another drug possession so if y'all have been in here a little bit you hear this idea of um the disease of addiction being chronic uh progressive and curable fatal so for me when you talk about fatal I was like come on a little aggressive here I mean let's be real now it's a it's a little more serious today because back when I was using like we didn't have as much access to you know the prescription drugs or fentanyl and heroin and all that kind of stuff but um but I didn't understand this idea of the disease of addiction I didn't understand this idea of um progressiveness I just thought that I was uh unlucky I didn't think I was doing anything wrong it never crossed my mind one time that I might have a drug or alcohol problem I literally was doing what I thought everybody else did I just kept getting unlucky and getting caught 
But the one thing that I have in common with every every time I ever got in trouble, the one thing in common uh, was me. I was the one that ended up in handcuffs. I was the one that ended up ended up in those predicaments where uh, you know uh, where negative things were happening, and not everybody else that was doing what I was doing was getting arrested. And so um, I feel like I was lucky in that sense because sometimes people go, "Oh, well, I, I've never been arrested, so I don't have an issue." You know, I, I was one of the lucky ones that, you know, it's hard to deny you have an issue when you keep getting arrested. But um, I'll tell you about the last time I, I uh, the last time I got arrested was I had, um, I had wrecked my car. Uh, I clipped a curb driving home one night and I got a, a, a DWI um, because I was a minor and I had alcohol in my breath and they took me to jail. Four months later, my girlfriend and I were driving home. I was 20 years old. Uh, we get pulled over for a headlight being out, and um, and the cop. I had a suspended driver's license because when I got arrested four months earlier, they suspended my license. I didn't know you're supposed to send it back to the state, so I give them the license. Oddly enough, the guy pulls me out of the car and says, "Hey, you know you're supposed to mail this in." I say, "No." Um, but he said, I don't know if you recognize me, but, uh, I'm glad you're not driving. Cause I gave you a DWI four months before this was the same officer four months apart that gave me a DWI that had me pulled over. He was about to let us go. And I had a black sweater on and I had a green leafy substance <laughs> stuck in my sweater. And, um, this green leafy substance, as you can imagine, it wasn't, uh, grass of the ones that rolling around the hay. It was an illegal substance that shouldn't have been on my shirt. But um, it was at that time when he stripped me, he found my stash, and I got arrested. And I was sitting in the back of the car, and I wasn't thinking about my parents, and I wasn't thinking about being disappoint, uh, disappointing everybody. I wasn't thinking about losing my real estate license. I wasn't thinking about getting, um, getting fired. I wasn't even thinking about having to go to jail again. What I was thinking about was finally someone's going to help me control my using. Because at that point, if you would have asked me if I had a drug or alcohol problem, I would have said unequivocally, no. Unequivocally, no. I think that's the right word. Um, because at that point, I didn't know anybody that didn't drink or do drugs that wasn't square or born-again Christian, and I didn't want anything to do with either one of them. And so I was in the back of the police car, and I think, man, maybe I'll get on probation now. And because I'm on probation, I'll cut back my smoking, I'll cut back my drinking, and uh, and everything will be okay. Well, um, this was the first time that I ever wanted to stop doing drugs and not being able to. And what I mean by that is this was September, this was December. My court date was in May. I thought to myself, I'm gonna um, I'll chill, pump the brakes, cut back on my using, but I'll stop using a month before my court date. And a month rolls around. Sunday comes. Sundays are always good days to quit because I'm gonna Monday you start a new week and I thought, hey, I'll quit on a Sunday and first day uh, uh, clean would be Monday. And so I did this. I quit that night. Monday rolls around. Somewhere around two, three, four in the afternoon, I start getting the itch of like, man, what am I gonna do? I don't, I don't know life without doing some sort of drugs and alcohol. And so I said, well, you only need you only need two weeks to get off of uh, the drugs I was using. So I figured I'll just give it another week. And that next Sunday rolls around. I'm like, all right, three weeks. I'm gonna quit. I'm ready to stop. And I wasn't able to. 
and the two weeks roll around the same conversation in my bed that Sunday night I'm not going to use tomorrow no matter what and that day rolls around and I said screw it I can't do it so I went into my court date I'd been using the night before and I told my probation officer I couldn't stop you know I expected a slap on the wrist and uh come back next month and it didn't work like that like he was like hey thanks for being honest but uh we're gonna put you on um I can't remember the type of probation it was but basically where you had to check in every week um he recommended I go to to rehab um as some of us are kind of cunning uh I was able to talk him out of it and say I don't really have an issue can you give me till the end of the summer I'll come every week etc and this was the first time that I said, fine, I, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to drink because this is another thing. I don't know if y'all have ever experienced this, but I could understand you telling me to not do drugs, but I couldn't understand not being able to drink alcohol because alcohol is not my uh, drug of choice. Alcohol is not my preference. Um, you know, as far as I was concerned, I didn't even like alcohol. I just did it because it was there. So here I am having this conversation with my probation officer underage and, you know, wondering why do I have to quit drinking alcohol? Well, number one, I was underage. It's illegal. And number two, I was on probation. And on probation, you're not supposed to do any substance, even alcohol, even when you're of age. And so I said, screw it. I was able to stop. I stopped. But here's the problem. I stopped doing drugs and alcohol, but I kept hanging around the same people. So I was with a, I lived with a girl who drank and drank alcohol and did drugs the way I did. And her attitude was, neither one of us knew anything about addiction, but her attitude was, I'm not the one that got in trouble. You are. So why don't you just come out with us? We'll go to parties. We'll go do all this stuff and you just don't drink. And it'll be all good. We can go on about life as, you know, life as usual. But the problem is, and I don't know if you've ever tried this, but when you go out partying or you go hang out at someone's house and everybody's doing drugs and drinking alcohol and you're not, it's freaking, it's annoying. It sucks. It's boring. It's like, and it's even, for me, it's like, you know, anxiety producing or I get pissed off about like I would get really frustrated. I'd want to go home. Everybody'd be like, "What's wrong with you?" And I'm like, you know, you know, it's because I couldn't use. That's the truth. And also, no one. It, it's no wonder I didn't know I got frustrated because I didn't know how to live any other way. Like I didn't know what it was like to hang out with buddies or to have a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday and not do drugs at least a little. Or not drink a li- at least a little bit of alcohol. Like, I did not understand or have any experience with that. And so, um, so yeah, this was like my first time to white, what they call white knuckling it, if you've ever heard them talk about that in here. And so, uh, I white knuckled it for a while. But what happened was, after about three weeks, I'd go to these parties on the weekends. And I'm like, you know what? Alcohol's in and out of your system pretty quick. I'll just have a drink or two. No big deal. And I had a drink or two, and nothing bad happened. I didn't get drunk. I didn't drive drunk. Uh, I didn't get arrested. I didn't have a fight with my girlfriend. Nothing happened. I'm like, dude, this is great. Uh, So the next weekend, I did the same thing, except this time, instead of having one or two, I had like three or four, so I got like a little buzz on, right? 
But again, nothing negative happened. My probation officer didn't find out. I didn't get arrested. Nothing crazy happened. But what happened was that started this, um, the progression, the obsession, the compulsion that I have when it comes to drugs and alcohol is that it just started ramping up. And so I went on about a two month, two or three month period where started out with just a little bit of alcohol, even though I, t- I would tell you right now, I still don't like alcohol, still didn't like alcohol. I just used it because it was there, right? But it was the alcohol starts, then the hard drugs start. So sometimes you'll hear people talk about recovery, like um, this idea of drug of choice, right? And if I have a drug of choice or if there is choice, sure. I have some that I like more than others, but but if they don't have my drug of choice, I'll use anything. I'll try anything. I'll do anything. I don't care. Even if it makes me feel worse, I'll still do it because I like to use things that change the way I feel because when it really boils down is I don't feel good enough. I don't feel smart enough. I don't feel fast enough. I don't feel tall enough. I don't feel comfortable in my own skin. So I'll do things that, um, that will try to cover up how I really feel about myself. And so when there's substances around, that's the easiest and fastest way for me to change the way I feel with the substance. And so what I do was, is I'd start layering on these hard substances, like, um, you know, just harder drugs that are in and out of your system longer, uh, in and out of your system faster. Now, I was still going to see my probation officer every week. So imagine this, I'm working every day, I see my probation officer to give a, a UA every Tuesday, and every weekend, I'm, I'm using alcohol and doing drugs. How do you think I feel when I go in to see my probation officer on Tuesday? Little uncomfortable. Because I knew at any given moment, like, he could be like, yo, the gig is up, you're going to jail. But what I was doing is I was drinking these drinks that are supposed to make you give a clean UA. And in some ways, I was getting away with it. And what I mean by that is I would drink the drinks... I'd be sweating, I'd be nervous, I'd give the UA, I'd hand it to my to my probation officer, and he'd be like, great, see you next week, and I'd come back next week and nothing would happen, and I'd drink the drink, and I'd give the UA, and I'd give him the, great, see you later, man, thanks for coming, so I was thought I was getting away with it, but what I found out later was, after it was nine UA, so that would have been nine weeks, two months, pretty much, he calls me into his, his supervisor's office, I thought it was because he was going to tell me how great of a probationer I was and how good I was doing on my probation plan. Um, and he says, hey, uh, you've given us nine diluted UAs. And nine diluted UAs or a diluted UA means it's basically like there's not enough. There's not enough. Well, there's no drugs in a diluted UA. That's a good thing because I didn't get in trouble with drugs. But it did, they basically couldn't even tell if I was human or not. They couldn't tell if I was a man or a woman, right? It was basically like I was pouring water into a UA cup, right? And so here I am. He goes, hey, you got me nine dilute UAs. One more and I'm going to revoke your probation and you're going to go to jail. And so this was in maybe, uh, this was at the end of August. And so imagine this. I'm 20 years old. I pay my way 100%. I'm a real estate agent. I starch my clothes and tuck, tuck my shirt in. Professionally, everybody says, wow, you're doing so great. Wow, I wish my son was like you, Preston. Wow, if you could just hang out with my kids and everything would be good. Wow, you're doing so wonderful. But I was doing dope on the side. 
I could not use. I was on probation, looking at jail time. But out here, everybody said, wow, you're really doing great. And I went into, um, y'all ever, I'm sure you've probably taken a drug assessment, but I went in to take this drug assessment. It was like this questionnaire, like, how often do you use drugs? Have you used these things? Do you drink more than this many drinks at one time? Blah, 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 blah. And I answered honestly, and uh, I thought I, I did really well on that test. I think I got like 10 right or something like that. Well, they go, they say, if you answered yes to more than three of these questions, you might have a problem with drugs and alcohol. So here I am. There's like 15 questions. I answered yes to 10 of them. I'm always, they said more than three. I was like, come on, man. There's no way I'm a, an alcoholic or a drug addict. This is bonkers. So what they did was they sent me to treatment, and so... For me, since I had this idea in my mind that drug addicts and alcoholics use at work. Do y'all ever heard that before? If you use at work, you must have a problem. So for me, I didn't use at work. So I didn't have a problem, I used after work. So I would go to work and then I'd have to go to treatment in the evening. So when I was in treatment, I was around a bunch of old people. Remember, I'm 20 years old. I guess at this point now I'm 21. And I'm around a bunch of old people. And they were like 40 years old. I'm 40 now. They were old. 40, 50, 60. They were missing teeth. They had tattoos all over the body from prison. Not from like out in the streets. From prison. They lost houses and jobs and families and kids. These are people that I'm in a circle with. And, and remember, I wear starch clothes. I have a real estate license. I go to work every day. I'm not like these people. They use all these hard drugs. Not me. And I was, having a, I was uh, having a conversation with my counselor, and I was convincing her that I wasn't an alcoholic. Not only am I not an alcoholic because I don't like alcohol, but I'm not an alcoholic because when I drink, I only do a little. And here's the thing. I was on probation. I was last straw, about to get sent to jail if I got revoked. I was in a treatment center that they say you can't do drugs and alcohol. Probation, even though I was 21 years old, probation says you can't drink when you're on probation. And I'm having a conversation with my counselor about why I should be able to drink on the weekends. So she says to me, this was the change, this was the shift. She says, Preston, I know you say you don't have a problem with alcohol. I say, thank you, because I don't. She says, don't you have two DWIs? Yes, but that's because I was a minor. I wasn't really drunk, of course. She said, don't you have two DWIs? Yes. Don't you have a number of public intoxications and minor possessions? Yes, but it wasn't my fault. You're on probation, is that right? Yes. If you get uh, revoked, you're going to go to jail, right? Yes. You're in treatment. We say you're not supposed to drink, right? Yes. If I tell your probation officer that you're not following the rules... You're going to go to jail. Yes. And she goes, now why is it that you can't quit drinking alcohol? And that was a question that I hadn't considered before. Because I didn't consider I couldn't. I was trying to convince her that I didn't like it. It wasn't my drug of choice. I didn't have an issue with alcohol. I had an issue with drugs. Why should I have to stop drinking alcohol? But that was the first time it was ever presented to me that... I was hanging on to a substance, 
even though my butt was on the line. Everything was on the line. Everything I could go, everything, my whole life could be turned upside down, but yet I was hanging on to a substance for dear life, trying to convince someone that I didn't have an issue with it. And so that was on a Thursday. That next Saturday, I went to an AA meeting. I left the AA meeting. I went across the street to a party. Um, I'd forgotten about that conversation that we had had. I grabbed a drink. I opened the, the I opened the beer. You heard, you know, like the sound the beer makes when you go. <laughs> and I remember I had a knot in my gut. I remember going, "Why am I so insistent when my butt is on the line? Why am I so insistent on drinking this substance when I say I don't have an issue?" And so that was like the last time that I had. Um, that was the last. Not the last drink, because it would be great to say, oh, I'm not going to drink this, and I put it back, but I had an issue. I was an alcoholic, so I got hammered that night, and that was the last time I used, and that was on September 9th or something, 8th or 9th, something like that, but that was the start of my journey, and what I mean by that was I, I told myself the next day, I said, look, these people might have a point. They, maybe my counselor might have a point. Maybe my, uh, maybe the people that I was sitting in that rehab after work might have a point. But here's the deal. If, if uh, I'm going to stop everything, I'm going to do what my counselor says. If they say go to trust, it means I'm going to go to trust, it means they say get a sponsor, I'm going to get a sponsor and do whatever they say. And if they're wrong, I'll go back to drinking and using. My tolerance will go down. Uh, it'll be cheaper for me to get high. It's a win-win situation. But if they're right and they say my life will be better than I can ever imagine, then hey, it's worth a shot. So what I did was is I, I said I'm going to give this a shot. I still didn't think I was an alcoholic and I still didn't think I was a drug addict. And so something happened once I stopped using drugs is all these old people that looked different than me, that were different ages than me, that did different drugs than me, that had different backgrounds than me, that lived in different places than me, that had lost jobs and families and uh, kids, was when I listened to what they talked about, when I listened to their feelings, when I listened to what they thought, when they would say things like, I never felt good enough, I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin, when I feel backed into a corner, I went out and I'll do anything, I'll get mad or I'll drink or whatever. Like when I started listening to that stuff, that's when it hit me is that those old people didn't start out old, missing teeth, been to prison, losing relationships and jobs. They started out where I was 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, having little scuffs, run ins with the law, having little bumps in the road, still being able to keep it together. And so that was the start of my path. One thing happened to me too was when I gave it a shot and when I listened and realized that they were I was just like them, then I went from maybe they're right and I think I might be a drug addict and alcoholic, but then the other part kicked in. I had such a low self-worth that I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I was smart enough. I didn't think that I could... Um, Yeah, I just didn't think I could do it. Not to mention, I didn't know anybody that didn't drink or do drugs, right? So as you can imagine, which I'm probably preaching to the choir here, is like here we are, people telling us not to drink and do drugs, but everybody that we know drinks and does drugs. Or here's the flip side. I didn't want to hang out with anybody that didn't drink and do drugs. They were square. Who wants to hang out with them, right? So like I was in this like, 
I was in a rock and a hard place. I knew they were right, but I didn't have enough self-worth, self-esteem to think that I could could actually do what they say. So what I did was, is I just started going to meetings every day. I went to uh, 12-step meetings. I went to, um, I probably went to a meeting a day for probably four years. And so an interesting thing happened when I started going to meetings is, um, and doing what they told me to do, magically probation got real easy. Like it was no longer, it was no longer a pain in the neck to, to be on probation anymore because I was actually like doing what they told me to do. I, <laughs> you imagine that. It was crazy. Like I didn't get in trouble with my parents no more. I mean, I'm a, I was technically quote unquote an adult, but there was no longer any issues when I started quote following the rules. I was doing what they told me to do. Um, it was no longer harder. It was no longer hard to not use drugs because I wasn't hanging out with people that did drugs. Um, here's an interesting thing: is as, as uh, maybe in the predicament that y'all are in now, is when I started going to meetings. You know. When I go to meetings today, I still hang out with people that like drugs. The only difference is, is they don't use drugs. Does that make sense? Because before, I would go hang out with people that like to use drugs, but they actually use drugs. And the problem is, is that when I do drugs, I get in trouble. So remember I said I didn't want to hang out with anybody square? Well, when I went to meetings, I didn't hang around with square folks. I hung out with drug users that don't do drugs anymore. Right. So the reason that was important to me is because I didn't want to be a square. Now you look at me today. I have to convince you that I'm not square. I used to be cool at one point. But the point was, is that these were people that used the way I used, felt the way I felt, did what I did, sometimes even worse, um, uh, sometimes not as bad. But they were the people. They were my people. I like hanging around people that do drugs and drink alcohol. I like hanging around people that do stuff that's in the gray and like to break the law. Like that's even today, to this day, that stuff still interests me. It's been 18 years and I'm still interested in that stuff. The only difference is, is when I go hang around with people in 12-step meetings, it's, we still have that connection. We still have that banter. We still have that, um, that identification, but we don't break the law anymore. We don't steal anymore. We don't, um, we don't insist on using drugs even though my whole life is on the line and everything's going to go awry if I get in trouble again and we just don't do it anymore. And so that was like a big shift for me. Um, the, uh, a couple of really great things happened since I got, um, since I got uh, clean and sober. After I, bet I had about two years clean, I think, I started to um, go back to college. Now remember, I cheated my way through high school. I've never felt good enough. I've never felt smart enough. Um, I didn't think I could do it on my own. I thought I needed help with everything. Um, And I started taking one class a semester at a junior college. And these were high school classes. They call them remedial classes. This is all the stuff you're supposed to learn in high school. I went to a school for a year and a half before I got one college credit. So, So think about that. You, get a, you go to recovery high school. You decide you want to go to college. You go to college for a year and a half before you get one college credit, right? A lot of people would be unwilling to do that or they would quit, right? Like, what's the point? Why am I going to go? I got to go to school for a year and a half before I get one college credit. But for me, I had a dream of one day going to college, even though nobody in my immediate family went to college. I thought it was uh, 
college was only for squares, but I, I wanted to go. So I just started taking these classes. Um, one thing that I did that really helped me out in college was um, in 12-step fellowships, programs like AA and NA, they tell you to do service work. So they say, like, show up, set up chairs. Back in the day, they used to smoke in meetings. So they'd say, like, set the ashtrays out, clean them out after, make coffee, participate in the group conscience, which is like the business meeting at the end. So I was doing that in my 12-step meetings. But when I went to college, I did that there as well. I joined what's called the student government. Now, before, I didn't even know what student government was. Like student council, if y'all have ever heard of student council in school. It's for the smart square people. That's what I thought. But what I did was, is I got, I started participating in, in the service structure in school. I got a college scholarship. I transferred to Texas A&M. I graduated from a major university. I was 28 years old. For a lot of people, that's very old to finish college. But for me, like, I was a dope fiend. I like using. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. There's no way I can finish. And here I am. Because of the work that we do in here, was able to finish college. I went on a study abroad trip to South America. I was there for five months. I went to meetings in South America in a language that I couldn't even understand what they were talking about. But here's the, here's the other thing that's significant about why tw- I think 12-step fellowships are important is when you don't do drugs and you don't drink, right? You got this free support group that you can go to. Well, what happens when you go out of town? Where do you go? What if you're struggling? What if you have a propensity like me to use outside substances to change the way you feel when you don't feel good enough or you don't feel smart enough you feel back into the corner? You want to use a substance that's illegal and you're allergic to. So what do you do when you're out of town? Well, if you go to 12-step fellowships, if you're a member of those 12-step fellowships, you can actually go to meetings anywhere in the world. So I've been to meetings in South America. I've been to meetings in England and France and Singapore and Hong Kong. These, I just show up at these meetings here in Columbus. I never even been to Columbus until a few, a few, uh, not even a year ago. I show up, I plug in the meetings. I already got a, I already have friends. How do you think I met some of these peeps in here? Going to meetings, right? It's like, it's like this instant network that I have, all because I'm allergic to drugs and alcohol. And I guess on the flip side, I like drugs and alcohol. I just don't use them. And so. Um, so I put myself through college. I, I met my wife who was, uh, um, I definitely married up there. I moved to Philadelphia for eight years and now I moved to, to Columbus. And here's what's significant about this is, um, I work for a drug and alcohol and mental health treatment center. I've wanted to do that for, I've wanted to work in the field for probably 17, 18 years, but, um, I'd like to say I never had a choice, a chance, but the truth is, is that I didn't think that, I didn't think I could do it, number one. Um, my idea, because I didn't have, a, I had a lack of experience in the, in the industry, like I thought you had to be a counselor to work in the field. And then to come to find out, you can actually work for like a recovery high school. You can actually do outreach and marketing for a rehab. You can work a front desk, but I wanted to be around people that were like me. So uh, March, I changed careers totally. Like I used to do one career and now I do a whole nother career. And so I guess that's just saying that, you know, uh, I was taught early on that you got to know what you want to be when you grow up or this, y'all are in this predicament right now. Like, 
What do you want to study? What are you interested in? Do you want to go to college? What kind of college do you want to go to? What's your major? Uh, what do you, you know, what kind of, what do you want to do when you grow up? The reality is, is that how in the hell, I don't, I don't know. Like, how are you supposed to pick what you want to be when you grow up when you don't have, like, the experience of a bunch of different professions? Like, I didn't know any different. And so, um, that was actually, uh, that was actually something that I, uh, a couple of the, I gave a talk at a college Actually, the college that I went to, uh, where I was, uh, where I was taking the remedial classes, I did a talk about um, uh, less life lessons they don't teach you in in high school or technically in college, uh, particularly about picking a college major. So, um, probably the biggest, most important thing that I learned, per, in partic- particularly around school. So some of y'all might have a dream to go to college. Some of y'all might not. Doesn't matter. But 80% of people that go to college do not work in the field that they majored in. And what that means is you go to school to be uh, an English teacher. And a few years after college, you are no longer an English teacher. Like you're not working in English or you go to school for political science because you want to go into politics, and two, three, four years after college, you're not working in political science, right? So if you have an 80% chance of not working in the field you majored in, who cares what you major in? Like, just pick something you're interested in, right? So if you pick something you're interested in, it doesn't matter if that job makes a bunch of money or that degree makes a bunch of money when you're finished, or um, what your parents think or what your teachers think. If you're interested in it, then do it. Two reasons. Number one, if you're studying something you're interested in, do you think you'll do really well in school or not very well in school? If you're interested, what do you think? Really well or not well? Pretty well. And if you're lucky enough to work in that field and you studied something you really like, you did well when you're in school and you're part of the 20% that works in that field, do you think you'll be happy with your career or not happy with your career? That's right. So who cares what you major in? If that's what you want to do, study something that you like. In here, y'all probably have a pretty good, um, I guess a little bit of control over what you study or what books you read here or what you talk about in here. Like, practice or figure out some some things that you actually like and and put your focus and energy on that now i'll here's the caveat just because you're not interested in something doesn't mean you shouldn't do it in other words i don't like math but i couldn't go to my college advisor and tell him i don't like math i shouldn't have to take it i still had to take math right i could barely get out of science class in college I couldn't go tell them, I don't want to take sciences. They say, you got to have sciences to graduate, so I had to do it. So not being interested in something is not an excuse not to do it and not to do it well. So what, that, what, what I mean by that is, here's one of the reasons why it's important to finish high school, get a GED, and if you're lucky enough to finish college. Here's why that's important. Employers don't care how good you are in math. Employers don't care what grade you made in history. Yes, employers might want you to be able to speak well, but you might have a job where you don't speak to anybody. What they want to know is, can you finish? Right? 
Can you complete something? Can you finish your high school diploma? Can you finish a GED? Can you go to college and not just take a few classes? Can you actually finish? Because in the real world, when you become of age, 19, 20, 21, 25, 30, you're going to be doing a bunch of crap that you don't like. And you're going to have to do that because you have to make an income, right? So this idea of I'm only going to do what I'm interested in doesn't, it might play okay when someone else is paying your bills, but when it comes time for you to pay your bills, that doesn't play very well because you got to go out and do some stuff. Um, so that would, that would be one thing when it comes to picking what you guys study in here, or if you're lucky enough to go to college, picking like the thing that's going to give you the best job at the end of the day, pick something you like, like who cares? It doesn't really matter. They'll tell you it matters, but I'm going to tell you that shit don't matter. What matters is if you finish, right? The other thing, um, let me go through a couple of these deals. How long do I have, uh, in here? Huh? Oh, um, so here's a couple of things. Huh? You got so excited. Yeah, for real. That that was really more uh, terror of going, what the hell am I going to do for 30 minutes? Um, So here's a couple of things. And we can, maybe we can, uh, huh? (laughs) Let's see. 30, pick a college major, 80, 20. That's good. Um, IQ versus EQ. Y'all ever heard of that before? EQ versus IQ? You heard of IQ before? IQ? How they measure how smart you are? I've never heard of EQ. EQ is called emotional quotient. So, here, this is something very interesting. So, previously, many people relied heavily on IQ. What I mean by that is that uh, before we had computers and phones, we didn't have as much access to information. So it was very important for you to remember, remember information and be able to solve problems. It's still important to solve problems, but they would, they would rate people based on IQ. How smart are you? Most people have an average IQ, which is great. Um, but what is becoming more and more and more important, and y'all have an upper hand being at this school is emotional intelligence. Being able to identify how you feel at any given moment, number one. Being able to communicate with people and identify how they feel. See, in most high schools, y'all don't get to talk about things, the things that you guys get to talk about. Some people end up here because you got in trouble and you feel like you had to go here. But here's one of the really good things about where y'all are at right now is that y'all get an opportunity to learn how to talk about your feelings talk about your emotions, identify it with behaviors and thoughts, and it is uncomfortable, as my girl over here says. It's not fun in the beginning, right? Because here's the other thing. Here's what's even less fun. When people are asking you how you feel and you really don't know how you feel, like, like how do you know what sadness feels like? How do you know what shame feels like? How do you know what guilt feels like? You know, for a lot of people, it's either one of two things. Either I'm happy or I'm angry, right? So most people of your age don't get to talk about what's the difference between being angry and being scared. What's the difference between being angry and being insecure? What's the difference between having self-worth 
and uh, versus um, what's the word? Not confidence. Conce- being conceited or a fake ego, right? Because see, that's what I did a lot when I was young. Is I overcomp, so I felt really insecure and not good enough. But I overcompensated it with ego and and conceit. Conceit means I like I got my shit together, like I got it going on, like I'm the bomb.com, right? So I would like over over index that I had it going on, right? But the reality was I was covering up this low self worth and insecurity. But here's the thing: how do you know that? Like, where do you go talk about that stuff? You're not going to talk about it at probation. You're not probably not going to talk about it at home. You're not going to talk about it with your boys or your girls. Like, where are you going to talk about it? Well, y'all have an upper hand here because now that information, this is how I tie it into profession, is now that people have access to the internet now, which I remember when the internet came out. That'll give you an idea of how old I am. But so, like, why do we need to remember uh, when such and such war happened? Or why do we need to remember the formula for whatever when you could just ask Google and they'll tell you right there? Like, why need, Why do we need to memorize it? Well, here's the thing. Everybody out there has access to the same information. But what they don't have access to is to identify how, to, how you feel and how other people feel. So this is people skills, right? So you got an opportunity to learn people skills in here or, um, or learn how to work in a team. Right, some of these twelve-step fellowships—that's really what it's about. Like, how do you interact with people that you don't see eye to eye? But how can we learn to work together? Right. So that would be an—that would be a—that—that that was an upside for me, is learning how to do service work, learning how to um, uh, disagree, um, but not be disagreeable. In other words, I can disagree with you, but we don't need to fight about it. Like I learned that in. I learned that in rooms like this. I didn't learn that out there. And so these are some skills that um, are going to serve you well if you focus on learning EQ, emotional intelligence, versus IQ, remembering dates out of a book. Now, I'm biased to that because I don't think I'm that smart. However, EQ, EQ over IQ is will serve you really well. Um, here's the other thing I learned in the rooms. So oftentimes we talk about the difference between right and wrong, right? Now you can go as far as to that begin that began with my parents telling me the difference between right and wrong. Uh, religions talk quite a bit about right and wrong. Uh, probation talks a lot about right and wrong. But here's the reality. Once you become an adult and you're not on paper no more and you don't have to do anything, there really are no right and wrongs, just consequences. Right. So what helped me understand this was when I got clean in a 12 step fellowship, I had a buddy who we used to use together together and we were clean together. Right. And his sponsor taught him one way to do recovery. And my sponsor taught me another way to do recovery. And they were both totally opposite. And we would talk smack to each other about who was right and who was wrong. Fast forward 15 years and we were both clean and sober. Right, So we both came in at the same time. We did our recovery. We were sponsored differently. We worked the steps differently. We went to different meetings. We did everything differently. Fast forward 15 years and we were both clean and sober. So who is right? That's right. We don't really know. Here's the problem though. 
or here's the thing to be aware of, shall we say, is just because you don't think you don't think something is just because you think something is okay uh, and there's nothing wrong with it. If there's consequences, i.e. you're going to go to jail, you're going to get kicked out of your house, you're going to get kicked out of school, you're going to have some negative consequences. Just because you don't think there's something wrong with it doesn't mean (laughs) that you should be doing it. In other words, my sponsor would always tell me, if you're willing to suffer the consequences, then go right ahead. But there's a big difference when you're, I guess at this point, I was paying my own way, doing my own thing, and I was no longer on paper. But like, if you're doing something that's against probation or against treatment recommendations and you get in trouble for it, well, you're just gonna, you know, you have to suffer the consequences of your actions. So the reason I bring this up is there really is no right way to do this thing that they're talking about in here. There's a lot of different ways. And y'all got access with this thing right here and two of y'all's teachers that have a lot of experience. Like, you get to experiment. That's why, like, bringing people like me in. Like, I got a different experience than everybody else, but here's what your job is. Your job is to seek and to to look for answers, look for new ways, learn new things. How do I identify my thoughts, feelings, and emotions? How to be out there in the real world without doing drugs and getting in trouble? And your experiment, trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. And hopefully... Your trial and error doesn't involve you overdosing and dying or going to jail because that's what this is about. That's the that's the real deal. When we really get down to it, when crap hits the fan for real, for real, we're either going to jail or we're going to die. And most people that go to jail and OD don't plan on doing that, right? So um, that would lead me to one of my other uh, favorite things is fail fast, right? Fail fast. So... I, going back to this idea of I've been doing a lot of work recently emotionally and digging even deeper in uh, into the realm of self-worth, right? And so um, what's up? You gotta go? Good to meet you, man. Nice shoes, brother. <laughs> yeah. And two five two, man. That's making me feel old. They were throwbacks of people I used to listen to. Um, You know, it's one thing to it's one thing to be um, using drugs against your will. For, let me speak about me. I was using drugs against my will. That experience of me wanting to stop and not being able to, I didn't understand that I didn't have a choice on that. Right. So I would say, at night, I'm not using tomorrow, and something would happen. Whether things went well and I used things went bad and I used, I felt felt anxious or uncomfortable and I used, um, call it self-sabotage, call it, you know, uh, uh, an allergy, whatever you want to call it, 
I didn't have the ability not to. Now, once I got clean and sober and I got some skills under my belt, right? The stopping was just the first part. The, the, the drug and alcohol use for me was just a symptom of my greater issue. I shared a bit about my greater issue is I don't feel good enough about myself, right? So I have all these things about what I used to do when I was using. I'd be like, oh, that was because I was using. Oh, that was because I was drunk. Oh, that. Well, you stay sober long enough and you realize that sometimes you'll do some of the things that you swore you'd never do or you did just because you were under the influence and you do them sober. Now what? That's right. So now you're faced with the greater issue of looking in the mirror and realizing that's me. And I have some issues that I need to work through. Because if it was just the drug and alcohol piece, y'all all y'all both have experience with not doing drugs and alcohol. So why haven't your problems gone away? If it's drug and alcohol issue, you quit drugs and alcohol, and now all of a sudden you know how to go to school, you know how to have relationships with your parents, you know how to hang out and, and not have to use drugs, you can go to college and do the shit that you say you want to do but not be able to do it. Right? If, if it was just the drugs and alcohol piece, then you would already know it would be yeah. done. We wouldn't have to go through and do the steps and do learn how to identify our thoughts, feelings, emotions, and behaviors. We wouldn't need to learn how to, what, how to manage the feeling of inadequacy or low self-worth or anxiety. I wouldn't have to learn how to do that. And so the things that you guys have access to is to have these big boy and big girl conversations much, much earlier uh, than the average. Here's the other thing. I would love for y'all to stay clean and sober, but the odds are not very good. Dang. I mean, I got sober young, and I was still 21 years old. That is, that is, not very many people get sober that young. One of my best buddies, he got it when you got it, 18. I actually got two buddies. They disappeared from high school, and we wondered where the hell they went when they went to a recovery high school. I didn't know, I didn't know that piece. But I fast forward a couple years and realized they were still sober. So like, it is possible. I know someone that got sober. Did Jim? How old was Jim when she got? Jim was in her mid-twenties. Oh, someone I talked to was uh, got sober when they were fifteen. No, she's 17, yeah, yeah. So it, so it is possible, but here's the thing. Yes, talking about that youth-to-youth group, like talking to kids, and I, this is something that I'm quite interested in, is, you know, um, scaring someone straight, saying, oh, you're going to OD or go to jail, doesn't work. I even said it here. But this shit doesn't work. Nobody... I come up with the just say no era when they would say, this is your brain on drugs, and they would crack an egg, and then they'd say, this is your brain, and then they beat up the egg. and all. That shit did not work. Scared straight. There's TV shows about that. That shit did not work for me. Um, so it was this idea of, um, yeah, what is scare tactics don't work. They actually even say story doesn't work because here I am telling your story, and for all I know, you're thinking about some old dude who's telling a story that's a great story, but that shit ain't gonna happen to me. I did that too. I ain't like them. That ain't gonna happen to me. I'm smarter than that. I'm gonna do it differently, right? Until I ran out of options and realized that every time I did what I wanted to do, in one way, shape, or another, I got in trouble either with the law, I got in trouble in my relationships, whether they were intimate relationships or platonic relationships, I got in trouble at home, 
I got in trouble at school. I got in trouble with coaches. At one way, one way or another, I had negative consequences, either uh, with my social life, with my parents, at work, or criminally. <laughs> so, but you couldn't tell me nothing because I was going to do what I was going to do no matter what. Until my option, until I was, I'd run out of options, was I going to do anything? So that's an interesting topic when we're talking about youth-to-youth prevention, people that have never used before. That's a much different conversation of people that haven't done drugs and people that have and want to stop. And then you got the other part of, I want to stop, but I can't. That's a t- that's, those are tough situations. I mean, y'all obviously know what's up. You you know, maybe you don't want to stop and just going through the motions. That's fine too. <laughs> but to want to stop and not be able to, um, that's a good situation to be in. But it's it's a tough, it's a it's a rock and a hard place. It's a tough thing. So going back to this idea of it's fucking boring outside there when you're gone from here. A hundred percent true, right? Um, however, today the things that I think are boring or used to think were boring were actually fun to me, like going to meetings. I really enjoy meetings. I didn't in the beginning, but I would go sit in there and hang around with a bunch of old dudes and old chicks, and I'd hear them talking about stuff that I didn't care about, but I sat in there enough that that stuff became interesting. Going in early and setting up and making coffee and setting up chairs and having those conversations before, hanging around after with all the old dudes and old chicks, and like that became fun. Going to have coffee and not doing drugs and whatever, like that became fun to me. The other thing y'all have access to is they do have young people's AA. Now, I don't know. What is it? I just go to NA. There you go. That's great. Yeah. So I, I tell you, and I got clean in NA. That's where I went because I had a hard time identifying in AA. Number one, I didn't know what it was like to drink legally. And two, which is probably pretty important, is I like drugs. Remember I told you I had a problem identifying as an alcoholic. Today I identify as an alcoholic because this was with the help of my sponsors. I kept going, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm a drug addict. And he goes, well, if we took all the drugs away, would you use alcohol? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, would you use it uh, to excess? I said, yeah. He goes, well, then you're an alcoholic. Because I do... Remember I told you, I don't need a choice of drugs. I'll do anything you got. Even if I get sick on it, I don't give a shit. I just want to feel different than the way I feel right now, sober. I do not, I did not like to be sober. Now, fast forward, this has been 18, 18 years almost, is I've gone through ups and downs in my recovery where I felt just as bad sober as I did using. Except, except sober, I have tools I got people that I can call. I don't have to reach for the drugs and alcohol right away because I've got a lot of support around me. So, where I used to go, to, when I started going to meetings, I did not like meetings. I didn't want to hang around with those people. It was boring to me. But I had two choices. I'd go home and sit by myself and want to use, or I'd go sit in these, in these meetings with these old people, and I was at least moderately entertained. And so that's what I did was start hanging around with people that didn't use. Um, One thing that y'all got right here in your backyard is y'all got a recovery high school at OSU. There's also one in, not high school, a recovery college at OSU, recovery college at Texas Tech. There's a couple of of things going on that, uh, you know, um, that 
you guys have access to that a lot of people don't. Here's the other thing. When I used to go to meetings, there would be like five people in the meeting. Like that was it. We didn't have a meeting every... In the beginning, we didn't even have a meeting every day in NA. There was five meetings a week, and there was an average of like four to four to ten people in a meeting. And so I had to go to the other fellowship as well. That's the only way I was going to be able to go to both. But even, you know, you say you identify in NA, you know, I would still encourage you go hang, go into AA as well because they also have a large, they have a bigger population of people. So like, you know, to actually be, be able to go hang out there is going to be a really beneficial thing for you. Because here's the other piece is, um, if you want to learn how to be, let's just say a plumber, what's the point of going and hanging out in a hair salon to learn how to be a plumber? You've got to hang out with plumbers. So if you want to know how to live a life without drugs and alcohol, you have to go hang around with people that A, don't do drugs and alcohol, and B, preferably use drugs and alcohol the way you did and don't anymore. I'm not saying don't hang around with squares that don't drink drugs, don't do drugs and alcohol, but you don't, don't drink drugs. Although now you can you, be like, you can, there's a lot of drugs you can drink out there now, which is, uh, but, but it's not don't hang out with them. It's like, you need to have the peace where people that used and drank like you, but don't, because what happens for me is when I quit hanging out with y'all, I start thinking I'm normal. And normal people can drink socially. Drinking socially means they have one or two drinks at one sitting. I don't want one or two of anything. Right? So when I hang around with normies too much, I start thinking, you know, I could have one or two. That wasn't even really my drug. As long as there's no drugs around, I I still think that. At any given moment, I think, I could do a little right? So it's important that we hang around with us. People that use the way we use, live the way we live, but don't anymore. Uh, a couple other things that y'all blaze through these. Um, willingness to work for free. Now this goes along with mentorship, right? So in, in uh, a lot of the life lessons that I've learned have to do with, uh, have, have served me well professionally, i.e., Y'all probably heard it in here. If you have someone that, if you find someone that has what you want, you ask them to sponsor you, sponsor you, right? So the same thing happens professionally. If you see someone professionally that you think you'd want to be like, well, ask them for help. Ask them to mentor you. Go work for free for them. Just to be around them, right? They call it internships. I was too cool for an internship. But internships are just that. Like you think you want to be... I don't know. What do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> Quote, unquote. <laughs> you said a nurse last time, I think, didn't you? Right? So if, if you want to be a nurse, you go say, hey, can I come sit in this doctor's office for free? Like whomever, whatever kind of doctor you are, nurse in a particular area of uh, expertise, go volunteer there. They got me a The reason that's so good is it's like 
it's like the closer you can get to the sun, the better. What I mean by that is if someone is doing, if someone is good at something you want to do, the closer you can get to that person, the more you're going to learn. What I would do was, number one, I didn't really know what I wanted to be, but I was too intimidated by people that were successful. I also didn't feel good enough early on. And I was also unwilling to work for free. So these are three things that didn't serve me well when it came to mentorship professionally. Because I thought I needed to be paid. If I was going to do some work, you need to pay me. What I missed was all the things that I would learn if I came and worked for you for free. So does that mean you not need to make money? No, you still got to make money. But you make money and you go volunteer in an area in which you want to learn. Same thing with recovery. You see some dudes that have a way about them. They're spiritual. They're calm. They're whatever. Go hang out with them consistently over a long period of time. And you will glean some really good information in the survey well. I, I, I did that with tattooing. Yeah. Go, hang out in those places? Yeah, because it's 100%. Was... Now, there's plenty of tattoo artists yeah, out yeah, there yeah. that are stone cold sober and yeah. are very, very good influences, but you're right. You're still young, he was too. My dad's best friend. There you go. And then he was just, I just was there, and it just, yeah. They were both, yeah, yeah. Just... Well, here's what I'll also say, too, is that if you are um, in AA, they talk about being on firm spiritual ground. You know, there are times and situations where when you're on firm spiritual ground, you can go anywhere. And there's plenty of, like, I know people that are in recovery that uh, they're bartenders and they're, they're stone cold alcoholics. So it is possible, but it's equally <laughs> very important to not put yourself in situations where you're pretty much guaranteed to use. But that is, I mean, if you like, if you want to be a tattoo artist, look up either sober, find a sober tattoo artist to mentor you. Or just art in general. Yeah. Find an artist. There you go. So those are really good. Experiment. This is a time when you're young. Like we talked about this last time, but my, um, but if you think you want to be a tattoo artist, you might go try to be hang around tattoo artists and realize you don't want to be a tattoo artist anymore. No Same thing with nursing. Yeah. Like nursing might suck, or you might be terrible at anatomy, and you have to have anatomy to pass. You know, who knows? You, do, you don't really know. So until you get, you know, uh, until you get like old enough where you got a family and you don't have as many options, experiment with as many things as, as you possibly can. Not an excuse to not work and to not try. But if you try something and don't like it, you can always move on to something else. Here's the other thing. Uh, I put live small. <laughs> this is around debt. So... The, one of the things that was that a lot of people do is they get a good job or they start making really good money and they start buying a lot of nice stuff. Now, there's nothing wrong with nice stuff, but if you strap yourself with a bunch of debt and a big car payment, a bunch of nice shoes, and you're spending all your money and then before you know it, you're spending more than you make, that limits your options to experiment, to volunteer, to work for free, and to have internships. And the longer that you can, I'm a, I've always been a, a big fan of work because I felt like if I paid my way that nobody could tell me anything. There's probably, there's deeper issues there, which I could tell you, but, um, but when you live small and you keep your costs down, you actually have options. 
particularly if you save your money. Like if you save up a big lump of money and you want to go study abroad for six months, well, if you got the money, you can do that. If you're strapped with debt and you can't afford it, you're paycheck to paycheck, you ain't going to study abroad for six months. So live as small as possible and stack your money. That was that was really, really big. Stack that money. Uh, fell fast, learned it. This is, uh, if y'all want to learn a really good uh, skill, learn how to sell. In other words, being a salesman. So... <laughs> exactly. Now, in this experimentation stage, if you don't go to school right out of here, like take learn uh, take sales jobs. I liked waiting tables. That was probably one of my favorite uh, jobs. You can learn how to sell there. Um, going out and doing what they call canvassing. So you're like door knocking and trying to get appointments for people. In a lot of ways, it sucks. But learning how to sell is... <coughs> applicable to absolutely any job that you can do even your teachers here it's I would probably argue it's a sales job whether we're trying to sell someone on coming to the program whether we're trying to sell someone on donating some money and give us a uh, buy us a van or selling your yeah so these are all skills that are gonna that are gonna even if you become a nurse if you can sell you are you are gonna be a uh, you're going to be double trouble for them because, oh, here's the other thing. If you know how to sell, uh, you're usually the last one to get fired. That's a good thing, right? If you're customer facing, for example, in any kind of business, the salespeople are the ones that bring in money. So if times get tough and people get let go, they're going to fire people that aren't bringing in money. So if you're selling, you'll be the last to get let, let go. That's a, good, that's a good one. It's true. Uh... Here's one. Um, so we've all heard of uh, positive thinking. And although positive thinking is good, sometimes, at least for me, it feels fake. In other words, sometimes I feel so uh, insecure or my self-worth is so low that thinking positively doesn't feel real. And so... A guy that I follow, his name's Trevor Moab. He talks about neutral thinking. So instead of worrying about being positive, focusing on being less negative and try to be more neutral. In other words, what I realized was is that um, the dude had mentioned make a list or, or track your thoughts. And so what I would do is at any given moment through the day, if I thought something, I'd write it and see how many of those thoughts were negative and how many of those thoughts are positive? What I realized is 95% of my thoughts, particularly about myself, were negative. And so to go from 95% negative thinking to positive thinking seemed like too big of a jump. So what I started doing was instead of worrying about being positive, I started to try to be less negative. So what that did for me was it helped me, it helped me quit beating myself up quite so much. Now, there's more work to do there, but if you have a choice or you can be aware of negative thinking, positive thinking, or neutral thinking, try not to focus too much on, uh, put too much pressure on you for being positive. Just be less negative. That's it. Um, And hopefully, uh, you'll start bringing yourself and hanging around people that are less negative too, so it makes it easier. What else? I don't think there's anything else I got. Um, 
Do you got any any questions that can uh, that can make up the answer to? I'm kidding. Yeah.